Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, if you have little ones, the rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I don't want you to raise your hand but I want you to think about it. How many of you have made a major life decision that caused you a lot of anxiety? A major life decision. Some of us have made major decisions, but there's probably nobody in recent history that made the largest decision, and that was back in October of 1962 when the United States and the Soviet Union were on the brink of nuclear war over the Cuban Missile Crisis. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy tried to topple Fidel Castro's communist regime in Cuba. And as a way to counteract that, the Russian premier at the time, Nikita Khrushchev, said, we're going to secretly build nuclear missiles in Cuba to be ready to attack the United States if they continue their aggression against Cuba. And so in October of 1962, U.S. intelligence took aerial photos of Cuba and they found evidence of medium-range ballistic nuclear missile sites in Cuba pointed at America. And this launched the Cuban Missile Crisis. And John F. Kennedy went on television with a stern warning to Russia to back down. Now, behind the scenes, the world didn't know it, but we were on DEFCON 2, which meant that World War III was imminent, which means that submarines were in that area ready to launch. World War III pretty much was imminent at that moment, behind the scenes. Two days later, Khrushchev sent a message back to John F. Kennedy and says, we will not relent. Back down. It was a stalemate of epic proportions, the two world superpowers at the brink of nuclear war. October 27th, Khrushchev sent a letter to Kennedy saying, you need to remove Jupiter missiles from Turkey, and then we'll talk. So that was the condition, these Jupiter nuclear missiles that were in Turkey. The next morning, Khrushchev issued a public statement saying that they would remove all the missiles in Cuba. Now, what had happened behind the scenes was John F. Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy, had a secret meeting with the ambassador from Russia to work out this negotiation deal to to dismantle the missiles in Turkey. But for a few days there in October of 1962, John F. Kennedy was faced with a major decision. Do we go to war with Russia? The Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was during that time that the communication was not very good between Russia and America. It was a lot of times through, through letters. And so because of that, they developed the hotline, the telephone between the United States and Russia. Now, this is a position that none of us would want to be in. The president of the United States, DEFCON 2, 
the brink of nuclear war, do we pull the trigger? That, that's, a, that's a major decision of, of, of epic proportions with the stakes are very high. And only like positions of, of high authority do, do people make those major decisions that impact millions of lives. I mean, think about President Trump back in March, the decision he made to shut down the, the nation. And so those are monumental decisions that world leaders make where the stakes are really high. You sweat a lot, a lot of sleepless nights to make those decisions. But what if I were to tell you that every single person here today has to make the most important decision with the highest stakes ever? You may have some sleepless nights over that. And these decisions impact your eternal destiny. What's the greatest decision you and I will ever make? It's the decision to follow Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. It's the greatest decision anybody can ever make. You probably know the song. I sang it as I was growing up. We're not going to sing it, but I'll, I'll read to you the lyrics. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. You know, one of the key elements in the Gospel of Luke is this whole idea of following Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so as we move into chapter 5, I love this passage of Scripture, not only because it's, it's kind of comedic, it's just, it's just powerful what, what Luke records for us. It's the calling of Peter, the first disciple. And we see Peter's moment where he chose to follow Jesus. So let's read together Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennaraset. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to make the decision to follow Jesus? What, what does it look like to become a Christian? Well, from this passage of Scripture, we see 
Peter's example of how he came to faith in Christ, how he decided to follow Jesus. And what we see are three important descriptions of what it means to follow Jesus. I think these three things have to be in place for every single one of us if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to make that decision to trust him as Savior and Lord. And so let's look at these three. Here's the first. A follower of Jesus listens to the word of God. A follower of Jesus listens to the word of God. Now look at verse 1. The crowd is pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Jesus is teaching the word of God. Now remember, this is in Capernaum where we saw last week. What was Jesus doing last week? We saw he was teaching with power and authority. He was healing with power and authority. He was casting out demons. But here it says he was teaching. And the people were pressing in. They wanted to hear what Jesus was saying. And so in a turn of events, Jesus says, hey, Peter. Doesn't even ask Peter. Just gets in the boat says, I want you to pull out from shore, and we're going to have a floating pulpit out here, okay? Peter's like, okay, we'll get, in the, we'll get in the boat. So Jesus pulls out from shore. Peter's there. And Israeli scientists, archaeologists, have found an area in Capernaum where it may have been where Jesus had, had taught from the shore because there's a natural rolling hills that creates almost an amphitheater. And they estimate that if you were out in the boat, it would be like uh, the acoustics would allow you to to reach up to a thousand people uh, in teaching. So he's in this floating pulpit in Peter's boat teaching the people. Now, Peter had probably heard Jesus teach before. Peter's a good Jewish man. He probably went to the synagogue every week. He's probably heard Jesus preach. He's probably heard Jesus teach. If you remember the fact that um, last week we saw that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So he, he had some type of connection with Jesus at some point. He, he had a familiarity with Jesus. But here's the point. You can have a familiarity with Jesus, but not truly have a relationship with Jesus. You can know about Jesus, but you, you don't necessarily hear the word of God. And so Jesus was teaching the Word of God. He was unpacking and opening up the Old Testament Scriptures to the crowds. But what I find funny is Peter had no place to go. He was in the boat. It's not like he could fidget or he could, like, you know, take out his iPhone and start playing games. Everybody's watching him next to Jesus. So it's almost like Jesus has a captive audience with the crowds, but he really has a captive audience with Peter. Before a person can truly trust in Jesus, they have to hear the word of God. They have to know who Jesus is. They have to know what Jesus did. They have to know why they must believe in him. Now, this can come from a pastor at a pulpit like me telling you about Jesus. Or it could come from you sitting next to your friend at a coffee shop telling them about Jesus. It can be with your next door neighbor. It can be at work. It could be on the soccer field. It could be wherever God has placed you. But a person that doesn't know Jesus has to hear it from somebody else's mouth, the word of God. What does Paul tell us in Romans 10, 14 through 17? How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. In order for you to follow Jesus, you have to hear about Jesus. You have to hear the truth. You have to hear the word of God. You've got to know why you must follow Jesus, why you must trust him. And, and how does that word come to you? It comes from somebody else telling you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the cross has to be preached so that people can receive it. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel's got to come in words, but also with power. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to hear the word of the Lord. You've got to know why. You've got to know who Jesus is. You've got, to, you've got to hear the message. But sadly, here's the problem. Many people in Capernaum, where Jesus preached from that floating pulpit, heard the word of the Lord, but they didn't follow him. Because later on in Matthew, Jesus pronounces a woe. He pronounces a warning to Capernaum, the people that Jesus is preaching to right here. He says in Matthew eleven twenty three through 24, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroyed them by fire. And Jesus says, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than you, Capernaum, because you heard the message and you rejected it. So there were many there that heard the message, but they chose to reject it. They didn't follow Jesus. Peter can't go anywhere. <laughs> he can't get away. He can't get out of the boat. We don't know how long Jesus preached. I'm sure it was probably a long time. And Peter's the captive audience there. Peter sitting right next to Jesus, hearing the word of the Lord from Jesus' direct mouth. So Peter had no excuse. Peter could not go home that day and say, I didn't know. Jesus is preaching to the crowds, but he's really preaching to Peter, who's right next to him. So the first thing about following Jesus is the word of the Lord has to be faithfully told to you. You've got to hear the word. You've got to understand who Jesus is, what he's done, why you need to be saved. You need to hear the message of the gospel so that you can know why Jesus came and why you need him. So that's number one. A follower of Christ needs to listen to the word of the Lord. But here's number two. Here's the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture. A follower of Jesus confesses personal sin and guilt. Personal sin and guilt. Okay, Jesus is done preaching his sermon. He looks to Peter, and what does he say? There in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Let's go out to some deeper water, Peter, and let's, let's fish again. And Peter's exhausted because we find out earlier they'd been out all night. They're done. 
They're tired. They had already put their nets out. They were washing their nets. They were letting their nets dry. They were ready to go home and go to bed. And he probably, this, this, is, this is Sean's sanctified imagination, so I'm reading into the text here, but I'm, I'm sure Peter probably thought this to himself. Jesus, you're a great preacher. I like the way you explain the word of God. You're, you're actually a great healer, too, because I really appreciate you what you did to my mother-in-law. But you stick to preaching, and I'll stick to fishing. Don't meddle where you don't understand things, okay? I know how to fish. You know how to preach. Stay out of my business. I think that's what Peter probably said, because notice what he says there. He says to Jesus in verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, we'll let down the nets. We've been doing this all night and haven't caught anything, Jesus. We're fishermen. We know how to fish. We know what we're doing. And then he says, master. (laughs) Master. That word can be translated in the original language, boss. You're the boss, Jesus. Okay, okay, you're the boss. We'll we'll go just, we'll, we'll do what you say. You're the boss. Now, Peter's a little skeptical at first. But he does it because Jesus tells him to. So there is some type of faith there. Now, this is encouraging because sometimes people are skeptical the first time they hear the message of Jesus. They don't buy it all at once. They don't, they don't buy this whole Jesus thing. It may take them time for them to be persuaded or to understand or for you to share with them. And so that's okay. If you're here today and maybe it's the first time you're hearing things about Jesus and you don't buy this whole thing, what I'd say is keep coming, give it time. God will get a hold of you. Now, What happens when they put down their nets? Notice what happens. Verse 8. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. Now, the the boat was probably, what most scholars believe, probably 20 feet long by about 7 feet wide. So it's a pretty fairly large boat. And they caught so much that the nets were breaking. And then notice down there, they called to their friends... Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, if you're a fisherman, you're going to have two responses to this. Number one, you're going to be like, oh, yeah. This is a great catch of fish. This is money in the bank. This is awesome. I mean, I've got some great fish tales to tell my, my friends about this. This is a great source of income. This is a, the biggest catch of fish I've ever had. But then the second thought is, oh, no, I'm sinking. <laughs> this is not good. So you have two responses going on. This is great, but I'm sinking. And you'd think that that would be Peter's response. You think Peter would be, oh, this is awesome, Jesus. Look, how one, look, at, look at how much bank you're bringing home for me. That's not how Jesus, or that's not how Peter responds to Jesus. Look at verse 8. It's very puzzling. It's actually surprising to see how Peter responds to Jesus. Verse 8, when, P, when Simon Peter saw it, the fish... He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now what what triggers this in Peter? To fall down at Jesus' feet and to say, Get as far away from me as you can, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. What's, What's going on here? 
Peter had been confronted with the absolute holiness and authority and majesty and power of Jesus. Not only does Jesus teach with authority, as we saw last week, not only does Jesus cast out demons with authority and heal with authority, but but Jesus here has authority over the, the sea, the fish, the natural world has to obey him. And so when Peter comes into contact with the awesome power and majesty of Christ who's right in front of him, he becomes acutely aware of his own sinfulness and guilt. And he wants to hide. Jesus, get away from me. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. I'm a sinful man. Now, this often happens in the Old Testament when people are confronted with the absolute holiness of God. In the Old Testament, when people are confronted with the absolute holiness of God, what do they do? Do they run up and give God a high five and say, Woo, awesome, God? No, they don't. They're undone. They fall to their faces in fear. They think they're going to die. They quake in their boots because they understand how sinful they are in comparison to how holy God is. Think about the Israelites at the base of the mountain. Remember when God's giving them the Ten Commandments and the mountain's quaking and there's an earthquake and and God speaks to them from the mountain? What do the people say in Exodus 20, 19? They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We We don't want to face God. You, you speak for us, Moses, because if we face God, we're going to die. Glenn, one of our elders, read this earlier during our time of confession. What did Job say when he had been confronted with God in the whirlwind? Job 42, 5-6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God, I'd kind of heard about you. I knew about you. But now I really know you. And now that I really know you, I need to repent. What did Isaiah do when he was in the temple? When he saw the glory of the Lord high and lifted up. In Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's something we need to understand. Without Jesus, without Jesus, God is a consuming fire and we should be terrified of him. Without Jesus. Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Without Jesus, God is terrifying. But with Jesus, God is a father. And we should never be afraid, but find great comfort in his love. Through Jesus, God's a father. Without Jesus, God's a judge. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I want you to notice the change in language that Peter uses. Back before the catch of fish, back in verse 5, he says, Master, We'll, we'll do this, boss, because you said so. Notice the language change in verse 8. Verse eight. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O oh, Lord. 
O Lord. It's no longer, now you're kind of the boss. It's you're the absolute Lord. He'd heard Jesus preach the word of God in that floating pulpit. He'd seen the amazing miracle of the fish. And what does he do here, Peter? He owns up to his sin. He owns up to his guilt. And in repentance and brokenness and confession, he falls down before Jesus and says, You are Lord. You're Lord. Now, does Jesus rebuke Peter and say, Oh, your sin's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. In verse 10, Jesus gives those comforting words. What does he say in verse 10? Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peter was a man who caught fish for a living, but he had just been caught by Jesus in the net of sovereign grace. Peter confesses his sin. He owns up to his sin. He's been saved by God's grace. And now he calls Jesus Lord. So how does a person become a follower of Christ? Well, first you have to hear the word of God. You have to know who Jesus is, what he did, why he came. But then number two, when you're confronted with who Jesus is and who you are, you confess personal guilt. You repent in brokenness. And you bow before Jesus as your Lord. But that's not all. We see a third aspect. Here's the third thing that we see in Peter. Third, a follower of Jesus leaves everything behind by trusting in him alone. A follower of Jesus leaves everything behind by trusting in Jesus alone. How does, how does the story end? Look at verse 11. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, everything, and followed him. What did they leave behind? Well, you say everything. Well, what did they leave behind? Their boats, their nets, their livelihood, their source of income, their source of comfort, their source of convenience, their source of security, their right to live life how they wanted to live, their right to call the shots. They left all that behind. You see, here's the problem. Many people are content to take Jesus as their Savior. I want forgiveness of sins, and I want eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. But at the same time, they will not be content to say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. And rule my life and tell me how to live. You can't do that to Jesus. He's Savior and Lord. He not only forgives you of your sins and cleanses you and gives you a home in heaven, but he's also absolute Lord and has every right to tell you what to believe and how to live. And he now calls the shots and he calls you to leave everything. See, that's called repentance. True repentance. When you leave everything behind and you say, I'm following Jesus alone. Can you picture Peter saying this to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, I'm really glad you came to our town. You've done some great things here. 
Thanks for healing my mother-in-law. Thanks for casting out demons. And by the way, thanks for that great big catch of fish. And oh yeah, I, I bowed down before you and I called you Lord, but I'm content to stay right here and continue being a fisherman and call the shots. I'll follow you, Jesus, when it's convenient for me. Just don't make me leave my fishing business. I want to stay here and do what I've been doing. I'll check back with you later when you come back to Capernaum on your kind of little itinerant teaching ministry, and we'll check in back then. But, but I'll get around to it someday to following you, Jesus, when it's convenient for me. That's not what Peter did. He left everything to follow Jesus. Have you left your selfish ambitions, your sinful pleasures, your safety and your security, your comfort and your ease, your idols that are deep in your heart, your so-called freedom to call the shots? Have you left those things? Are you willing to leave those things? Because Jesus is greater. Jesus is more glorious. Jesus is more captivating than all those things that we hold on to. So what does it mean to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Well, number one, you've got to hear the word of the Lord. Number two, you own up to your own personal sin and guilt and you confess that. And number three, you leave everything and you follow him. You leave behind your sin, you leave behind your pleasures, and you turn and you follow him. Now, what happens next? In verse 10, Jesus gives Peter a promise. A promise. Not necessarily a command, but a promise. At the end of verse 10, after he says, don't be afraid, he says, from now on, Peter, you'll be catching men. And that that word in the Greek could be men and women. You'll be catching people. You'll be catching people. Peter, you've been saved by grace. I've caught you in my net of grace. Now it's your turn to go tell others about me. You're going to be one who's going to evangelize. You're going to share. You're going to tell. You're going to invite. You're going to preach. You're going to proclaim to others to come follow me the way that you did. It's very interesting in the original language here, the word for catch. You will be catching. It means catch alive. Catch alive. It's kind of like catch and release. <laughs> what do you do when you catch fish, fishermen? I was talking to some. I was talking. Yeah, where, where's Mike? I was talking earlier. He caught fish. Somebody caught fish the past couple weeks. Troy, you're a fisherman. What, what do you do when you catch fish? If it's not catch and release, what do you do? You skin it, you cook it, and you what? Eat it or you sell it. So Peter's whole life had been eating fish, selling fish, and now Jesus says, you're going to catch these fish alive. You're going to catch them alive. Philip Graham Ryken comments on this way. He says this, when a fisherman catches fish, he's usually hoping to eat them, not save them. But Jesus was calling Peter to be a new kind of fisherman, one who rescued people from the deep sea of their sin and brought them safely to the shore of salvation. Now, I've thought about this. Why? I've always thought about this my entire life, growing up with this passage of Scripture. Why does Jesus compare telling others about him to fishing? 
why does he make the metaphor of fishing? Fishers of men. Fishing. Why does he make it about fishing? Well, I've had to think about this. Let's ask some questions about fishing. I'm not the greatest fisherman. Some of you are probably better. But let me just ask this question. Can a fisher person, because there's men and women fisher, fisher people, can a fisher person, fisherman, fisherwoman, a person who fishes, can he or she, can I just say fisherman? Are you guys okay if it's easier if I preach to say fisherman, okay? Women, you're included in this. Girls, if you fish, okay. Can, Can they control if, you catch a fish, or how many you catch. Can you control that? If you're going to catch a fish, or how many you're going to catch. Can you control that? You can't control that. What's the one thing you can control as a fisherman, fisher person? You drop the net. You cast the net. That's all you can do. You cast the net wide, you cast the net far. Okay, here's the point. In the same way, Can we, when we tell others about Jesus, can we control if they're going to receive the message and how many will receive the message? No. We can't control the response. Only God is sovereign in how he brings people to faith. But what's the one thing you can control? The message. You scatter the message. You broadcast the message. You cast the net far and wide. God is sovereign in how he's going to save sinners, but he uses your net to draw them in. And we have the privilege and the responsibility to cast the net far and wide. And God will bring the fish in in his way and his timing. Here's how God has set it up. This is how God set it up. If we don't share, people won't come to faith. Now, somebody else can do it if you're disobedient, but the way God set it up normally, now I'm not saying God can't save without the message being out there, but God has set it up so that the way the fish are caught is in the net. So what has to happen? The net has to go out in order for the fish to be caught. The gospel has to go out in order for people to respond. Who's responsible for bringing the fish? God. Who's responsible for casting the net? You. That's how God set it up. So the question then becomes, okay, how do you cast the net? How do you fish for people? How do you share your faith? How do you do this? Well, you tell others the gospel. And some of you say, I don't know how to do that. I'm glad you asked, Pastor Sean. On Saturday, October 17th, we did this last year. We're going to do it again, sharing the gospel with confidence. So it's a morning training from 8.30 to noon. I will train you on how to share the gospel with confidence. It's open to anybody that wants to come to learn how to share their faith. It's on a Saturday morning, October 17th. You can pray for unsaved people. You can answer objections that people have about Christianity. You can demonstrate the love of Christ with actions. You can be a part of ministries and missions that are about getting the gospel out to people who have never heard. So the first thing about why I think it's a metaphor is that God is sovereign in bringing those who are going to be saved, but he uses our telling to do it. Now, here's another thing that happens. When you cast that net and those fish get in the net, do they want to be in the net? Do they want to be caught? There's going to be a struggle. So here's the point. In sharing your faith, it's a spiritual battle because people aren't going to want to come in to the kingdom. 
they're going to want to hold on to their sin. And when the net of God's grace begins to catch them, they may fight against it. And you have to be willing to share the gospel. So let me ask you a question. What's the natural environment or habitat of that of a fish? Not a, not, not a hard question. Water. Where do fish like to hide to stay away from the fisher people? <laughs> In the deep, dark water, right? So what's the natural habitat of those without Jesus? They're swimming in sin. That's their habitat. That's their environment. Where do people without Jesus like to hide to stay away from Jesus? In the deep, dark waters of their sin. They don't want to come to the light. That's why they fished at night, because during the day, the fish don't come to the light. They want to stay down in the dark, the dark waters. Jesus said it this way in John 3, 19-20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. It's a spiritual battle. So when people who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, people who don't want to come into the light, when you begin to tell them about Jesus and you call them to follow Jesus and you cast the net of God's grace and God gets a hold of them, they may wiggle. They may struggle. They may not want to come, but be encouraged. Because what does Jesus say to Peter? He doesn't say you might catch You may catch if you try really hard. Peter, it's all up to you. What does Jesus say to him? You will be catching men. You share the gospel. You cast the net far and wide. You faithfully proclaim Jesus. And God will bring them in. Maybe not the amount that you want. Maybe not the time that you want. Maybe not in the way that you want. Maybe the person that you least expected God brings in. But God will draw those whom he has called to himself. What did Jesus say in John 6, 37? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There are those out there whom are the fathers already through sovereign election. And they will come. Your job is just to cast the net. And when you do, God will bring them but you got to cast the net. So let me ask you to evaluate yourself this morning. The question we've been asking is, how do you follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Four questions that are pretty good indicators that this has happened to you. Number one, are you listening to the Word of God? Number two, are you confessing? Are you owning up to your own personal sin and guilt? Number three, have you left everything to follow Him? And number four, are you telling others about about Jesus? Here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus didn't wait for Peter to be good enough to save him. Or to do the miracle. Because Peter was worth it. Peter was sinful as sinful could be. And Jesus chose to show him grace. And to use him as a disciple to share the gospel. How wonderful it is that God used Peter, a sinner, to share the gospel message. Does Jesus save people who have it all together, who are perfect? If he did, nobody would be saved. Jesus saves those that are sinners, those that are messed up, those that don't have it all together, those that have major issues in their life. 
Jesus came to save the weak, the sinful, the rebellious, the broken. Those that could never save themselves. So when you hear about Jesus, and when you see the glories of Christ, and you think about the cross of Christ and what Jesus did by dying there, and when you think about the resurrection from the grave, and you think about the majesty and the glory and the power and the beauty of Jesus as Savior and Lord, the question for all of us is, is your response the same as Peter's? Do you fall on your face before Jesus? Do you own up to your sin and confess it and submit to him as Lord and leave everything to follow him? If you do, it's because God first grabbed you. God drew you. God caught you. God saved you. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes. God took the initiative to save you. And there may be some of you here today that is either in the process of happening or it has happened. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The greatest question any of us can ask is, have I decided to follow Jesus? If you have not, today's the day to nail it down and be sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads and let's pray together.